<clears throat> All right. Uh, hello, everyone. I hope people are able to join this call-in room. Unfortunately, I was having an extremely annoying glitch where I was not able to actually start the previous room that I had scheduled. So Colin was glitching and I could not, um, hold on one second. Colin was glitching and I was not able to enter into the room that I had scheduled about an hour ago and open that one. So I had to create a new one and open that one for whatever dumb reason. And so just bear with me for a second as I try to figure out how to clean up this mess. Um, so maybe I could just hum a tune as I... Hold on one second. La 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 la. Do 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 do. Because there was a uh, potential special guest who was considering joining for an impromptu session, and I want to make sure that individual <laughs> has the. Uh, Ability to join should they choose to come at what is admittedly a somewhat unusual time to have a call in. I admit that. I admit sometimes things are done on here in just an impromptu way and there's no rhyme or reason for it. But you know, that's life as a uh, Frank Sinatra once said, and we just have to push, persevere. Um, and you'll have to just deal with me killing a small amount of time as I try to figure out the correct solution. Okay, so maybe that person will come, maybe that person will not. Don't want to spoil the surprise should it happen. And uh, also, I want to register my surprising disapproval with Colin for presenting me with a glitch that I had never had to deal with before. That was uh, traumatizing in keeping with the theme of this session. Um, you know, it's funny because <laughs> I uh, wrote about this individual... Felicia Sanmez, about a year ago, March of 2000, March and April of 2021, right when I first launched a Substack, my triumphant Substack launch, uh, because I had noticed that she was actually, in her own way, an impressive journalistic pioneer. Because she was perfecting the usage of a certain kind of tactic which was paying enormous dividends within the journalism industry. And so I want to bring you back to March 
28th of 2021, where Felicia Sonnes, who is a Washington Post national political reporter and who is a Harvard graduate in her mid to late 30s, just for the record, just as some background info, uh, she did an elaborate uh, Twitter thread. And here's how she started the thread. Hours before the March 16th Washington Post town hall, the Politico reported on, I had a session with a therapist I hadn't seen for more than a year. I had changed insurance. I caught him up on the events of the past year, including all the threats, my doxing, and suspension. At one point, he asked me whether I felt feel supported by the Post's current management. Now that the editor who oversaw my suspension had retired, and I just burst into tears. So let me just stop there for a moment. She's referring to, in this thread, a report in Politico about a town hall that employees had been invited to at the Washington Post to discuss different management-related issues that arose, at least in part, due to the travails of Felicia Sonmez, where she had been taken off her the beat, or she had been prevented by a decree of an editor from covering issues or writing about writing articles about issues pertaining to sexual assault or sexual harassment. And at least according to Sonnez, it's hard to really get a great answer ever from the actual Washington Post editorial leadership about their thinking and rationale because they tend to be tight-lipped. But at least according to the grievance that was laid out by Felicia Sonnez, she was begun fairly targeted and penalized because she had been open with her experience in the past as a Me Too victim which is a whole other can of worms. And she had been subject to this disgraceful double standard whereby it was thought that she had a conflict of interest on issues related to sexual assault and therefore would not be permitted to cover them for the Washington Post. And I think actually on its face, there might be some legitimacy to that grievance. Um, but the thing with Felicia Sonmez is that she took it way, way, way farther than one might have supposed for a professional adult journalist in her 30s. Um, sorry, yeah. She said in this Twitter thread, March 28th, 2001, that she burst into tears. She's recounting what happened at her therapy session. So the therapy session that she partook in that week was... Not merely a private counseling endeavor to obtain help for whatever psychological maladies she's suffering from in the privacy of a therapist's office or Zoom meeting, but it was something that actually needed to be recounted and relayed for the entire world to see and to analyze. She continued on in this thread in March of 2021. It was the directness of his question that I think really caught me off guard. I've tried to keep my head down and just do my job best I can, despite having to take myself off sexual assault-related stories at least once every week or two, sometimes even more often. I faced no ban my first three months on the job. I wrote Me Too-related stories with no problem. It was only once the Kavanaugh story broke in September 2008 that the editors enacted one. It was lifted several months later and then reinstated in late 2019 when I was being attacked. 
When I was being attacked online after the publication of a story about the man who assaulted me. The ban has been in place ever since for more than a year now. And just for my sanity and yours, I am not really interested in relitigating her Me Too claim, which is also out in the open in part because of her conduct. Uh, but let's just say and leave it at this, hopefully, that there are uh, significant issues surrounding the veracity or lack thereof of this Me Too story that she told. And once I wrote about Felicia Samez last year, I ended up hearing from people who were privy to details about this whole episode that reinforced my perception that the veracity of this Me Too claim was at least in question. Uh, But she asserts it as just a total fact, of course. And she then says how psychologically crippled she is. She says her symptoms worsened. Um, she was forced to acknowledge that she could, did not feel supported by her employer. Uh, she said that she reported a whole lot of, quote, vacant staring. And that her, quote, trauma response kicked into overdrive. And on and on and on. Okay, so that, that was the thread of hers from March of 2021. In uh, abbreviated form, she, she continues extensively on the topic. Uh, okay, the special guest is not coming because it's a bit too late, but maybe we'll try to reconvene soon with this individual whose identity I'm not going to disclose because I don't want to ruin the surprise. Um, which is fine. I'll have to carry on the mantle on my own. What I wrote in this Substack post, and you can look it up, it's dated March 31st, 2021, journalists are centering the trauma because it enables them to acquire power. What I observed is that after Felicia Sanders published this emotionally intense Twitter thread where she effectively calls out, quote unquote, her employer, the management at the Washington Post, more specifically, They capitulated to her immediately, or almost immediately. They removed this block that had been put on her that prevented her from covering issues of sexual assault. So the point that I thought was worth making at that time was that she had been a trailblazer in popularizing this whole mode of rhetoric, what I would call therapeutic trauma jargon to acquire leverage within the media industry to advocate for her own position within the industry and to secure advances within her workplace because the tactic there worked. The tactic of her saying that she was bursting out into tears and she was so incredibly distraught from being attacked online and that she had been, quote, silenced. Um, This familiar mode of rhetoric had been very shrewdly and effectively employed by her to get exactly what she wanted at that time, which was to force the Washington Post management to capitulate to her demands and remove this editorial block on what she was covering. 
Um, and at the time, I wrote that actually this whole mindset that she embodied, and was also embodied by uh, Taylor Lorenz, who then was at the New York Times and then transitioned effortlessly to the Washington Post, I theorized that this was becoming the predominant or a predominant mentality within the media industry. So as ridiculous as it might sometimes appear to outsiders, or even as ridiculous as it definitely does appear to quote-unquote insiders, at least insofar as people who are in the media industry themselves, uh, but have to kind of withhold their public opinions because they don't want to get into any kind of snafu that could compromise their standing. Um, As ridiculous, again, as a lot of this rhetoric comes across as to ordinary, normal people who are not mentally, um, let's say, unbalanced, to put it kindly, um, the tactic is effective. It works. It gets results. It actually bolsters the position of people like Somnes and Lorenz within their respective uh, workplaces. And these are some of the most prestigious, quote unquote, (laughs) and elite workplaces in the entire media industry, not just in the US, but in the world. I mean, the Washington Post and the New York Times, um, in particular, the New York Times, I think it's probably fair to say, is uh, the most influential newspaper probably in the entire world. Okay. And this orthodoxy around deferring to the claims of traumatic experience by journalists and acceding to their demands on that basis was becoming the prevailing accepted orthodoxy within the workplace management structures of these institutions. Um, And... One thing that makes this tactic so effective is that it's really not falsifiable. Um, It's not possible in practice to take a claim from a Felicia Somnes that she is being egregiously traumatized by, for example, online criticism and show that that's a false claim. Because, number one, she may well be genuinely traumatized. She may well be in a mental state that she's accurately reflecting with her description of herself. I think that's probably likely. Um, But even if she were just lying, even if she were fabricating this mental state that she claims she's hobbled by, um, there's really no way to prove that empirically. So what happens then is that these claims are taken at face value. And they're accepted, and it's further accepted when these claims are marshaled into employment-related demands, when they're marshaled into points of leverage for the individual journalists to advance in their institution and to get what they want uh, professionally. Um, so I want to just read to you a uh, paragraph from uh, this Substack article that I wrote in uh, May, in, uh, on, in, on March 31st of last year, uh, because I think it gets to a continuing paradox or quandary in light of the recent reemergence of 
Felicia Sanmez and the drama now that she is almost single-handedly propagating within the Washington Post that's now become an object of fascination throughout the media industry once more. And by the way, I don't know Felicia Sanmez personally. I do know that she has attacked – when I wrote that article that was really pretty careful in not overly castigating her on personal grounds – um, she accused me of silencing trauma victims. And, um, you know, if I had been a Washington Post employee or even an employee really of any major media institution, that could have been my death knell, right? Because there's no way to falsify her allegation. The burden of proof is going to automatically be on me. I'm going to be perceived and portrayed as the aggressor. And it could have seriously jeopardized my you know, career prospects, if you want to call it that, or maybe even terminated them. Luckily, at the time, <laughs> she didn't have the power to run and complain to anybody who had control over me, uh, employment-wise. So uh, nothing really came of it. Um, but nonetheless, she tried to wield that same power that had been so successful within the Washington Post against me. Uh, so no, naturally, that made me sort of want to continue to follow her Trajectory, And let me just read to you this, this portion of that piece. Um, the state of the media industry is such that journalists are now incentivized to be as effusive as possible in professing how emotionally unstable they are. Why? Because it's a surefire way to bolster their pleas for a redress of various workplace or personal grievances. No longer are these psychological issues thought to be best dealt with in the privacy of a therapist's office or among trusted confidants. Instead, these journalists create a public spectacle, beckoning colleagues to flood their tweet threads and affirm unstinting support. When Taylor Lorenz of the New York Times recounted her own emotional turmoil stemming from allegedly, quote, violent online criticism, the International Women's Media Foundation, an NGO f- devoted to, quote, recognizing badass female journalists and photographers whose courage sets them apart, issued a rousing statement in her defense. Subsequently, these journalists' union representation will rush to amplify their grievances by echoing the therapeutic trauma jargon, such as stating matter-of-factly that the workplace policy decisions at the Washington Post are not just ill-advised, poorly conceived, or even unfair, but, quote, harmful. Here's the key part. Obviously, this harm cannot be externally adjudicated because one's harm must never be subject to contestation or, God forbid, falsification. So the logic goes, every person has the right to say they are harmed without ever having the legitimacy of that harm questioned, because to question the harm compounds the harm. The New York Times appears to be completely on board with this new harassment harm framework, and with results like these, it's only rational that more and more journalists are employing therapeutic trauma jargon to advance their professional and social self-interest. Okay, so that was my extrapolation from... Felicia Sanmez's successful leveraging of her claims to trauma to achieve certain professional goals back in March of 2021. And as the year wore on, Felicia Sanmez kept on this journalistic beat. Um, Felicia Sanmez, you don't really hear much about for the journalism that she purportedly does. At least I don't. And maybe I'm ignorant. Uh, But she becomes a topic of discussion seemingly only when she's in the middle of one of these drama flare-ups at the Washington Post or uh, 
elsewhere in the media industry. Um, so, hilariously enough, and uh, <laughs> this is where I guess I'm going to be a little bit harshly judgmental um, because, you know, why restrain myself? Um, in July of 2021, so a couple months later, she then filed, Felicia Sommers did, a lawsuit against the Washington Post, against her own employer. Now, that's pretty brazen. Um, that's a fairly dramatic step to take, to sue your own employer as she's working at the Washington Post. Does she never stop working at the Washington Post? She's still an employee. She was at, she was at the time this lawsuit was filed and subsequently all the way up to today. And here's what was alleged within her lawsuit. She, then at age 38, said this, at least by way of her legal representation. The Post hired Miss Sonnez knowing that she was a victim of a sexual assault by a fellow journalist. In deciding to hire her, the Post undertook a special duty to care for Miss Sonnez's emotional well-being. And she's claiming in this lawsuit that the Washington Post failed, at least per the standards required by Washington, D.C. employment law, that the Washington Post failed to uphold its special duty to care for her emotional well-being. Um, and so that was basically the crux of her lawsuit, uh, among many other wild claims contained uh, therein. And the lawsuit was ultimately dismissed with prejudice in March of this year. So about a year after the flare-up seemed to begin in earnest. Um, so you think that Felicia Sondes might be a bit chastened by that experience. I mean, she hired very competent, intelligent lawyers to put together the most persuasive possible case on her behalf that she had been wronged by the Washington Post. And the lawsuit was dismissed. Um, her contention that the Washington Post was, quote, especially cruel and reckless in its, quote, breach of its fiduciary relationship with Ms. Sonnez, it was dismissed. So basically laughed out of court. Um, you think that maybe at a certain point, focusing on this internal workplace drama might be a bit of a distraction from doing what her job apparently is, which is journalism. Um, although it's hard to tell what journalism she really actually does, at least in terms of what trickles out into the online algorithm. Um, but Felicia Samez clearly uh, pressed forward. And so that brings us to this past week. Um, I think getting too engrossed in media Twitter can be uh, somewhat silly at times and I admit that I'm guilty of indulging in it probably too frequently myself, but sometimes it's just too delicious to ignore. Um, and, you know, so just to rehash it briefly, Dave Weigel, who's this well-known politics reporter for the Washington Post, retweeted a joke that I think was bad only in the sense that it wasn't funny enough. Um, he retweeted this joke about 
women <laughs> either being uh, bisexual or bipolar. Um, and Felicia Somnes unleashed her wrath and demanded that the Washington Post uphold its special duty to care for her emotional well-being as a 38- or 39-year-old Harvard grad and uh, punish and discipline Dave Weigel. And sure enough, the Washington Post again capitulated to Felicia Somnes. Again, this is after months of litigation where her claims were at least in a sense adjudicated and then dismissed. Even so, the Washington Post still capitulated to the aggressive demands of Felicia Somnes and I think now though and sort of this is where what is interesting about what might be different about the current situation I think now the tide might be turning somewhat against Felicia and the journalists who are of a comparable mindset now I'm not saying that she's going to be banished from the industry. I'm not saying she's going to lose her job. Uh, I'm not saying that she's even forfeiting whatever leverage and influence she does have. I think she still has quite a bit, as does obviously Taylor Lorenz, despite all the drama that she's constantly embroiled in. Uh, But I do think that for your average media member, the ridiculousness of her conduct is probably crossing a line. Now, most of them won't say this publicly. They'd be deathly afraid to because of the repercussions it could entail. Um, but they see how now, we're, it's days after Dave Weigel did this dopey retweet, days after the Washington Post capitulated to Felicia Samez's demand and suspended Dave Weigel for a month without pay during primary season where he's would ordinarily be covering, you know, state and local uh, primary races uh, ahead of the midterm elections. Um, I think most people probably are increasingly inclined to look at her conduct. Now, days later, where she's continuing to demand that the Washington Post punish others for, uh, you know, supposedly subjecting her to a, quote, torrent of abuse, mostly on Twitter and email. And these people, I think, and I'm generalizing, but, you know, probably I think this is accurate. I think most of these people are probably thinking to themselves, okay, this is getting ridiculous. Maybe in theory, they're, they're in support of Felicia Somnes standing up for herself and not just taking whatever depredations she feels like she's being subjected to by the Washington Post management on account of her lived experience and trauma and so forth. But to go after Dave Weigel in this fashion, I think, might cause a lot of people to rethink. Because Dave Weigel is sort of widely regarded as a... um, Congenial fellow within the industry. Uh, I've met him, always got along well with him. He's always at events, political events all around the country. Um, 
And so a lot of people bump into him. A lot of people know him. He's kind of ubiquitous. Um, had disputes with him over the years. And, uh, you know, he's made some crazy accusations against me, against me at times. But in the main, um, he's generally fair and he's generally willing to admit mistakes and errors, uh, such as his admission of an error or a mistake and uh, issuing of an apology when he did that retweet that Felicia found so existentially threatening. Now, I'm not sure if Dave Weigel personally felt that a sincere apology was owed in that instance, but um, clearly there was pressure, a great deal of pressure internally for him to issue that apology. Um, But like much of the time with these forced apologies, it didn't actually bear much fruit for him. It just resulted in the punishment escalating and in the drama also continuing to swirl. Um, so, you know, Felicia Sanchez is uh, battling with other Washington Post people at the moment who are very gently and um, tentatively asking her to please stop this drama. Um, and, you know, there are emails coming out from the new Washington Post executive editor basically scolding the workforce for not being on their best behavior. I mean, the, you've got to read this email that came out today. Uh, I'll just quote uh, an excerpt from it because it really it reminds me of a slightly better worded injunction that you'd expect to receive as a seventh grader from your homeroom teacher when you're, you and your friends and are acting up in class. Um, here's what Sally Busby, the executive editor, says in her email dated today, June 7th. We do not tolerate violations of our policy prohibiting workplace harassment and our policy on prohibition of discrimination, which further set forth our expectations for employees and are designed to create an inclusive environment where all post employees can perform their best work. In the last year, we have enforced through conversations, mediation, and disciplinary measures, egregious violations of our social media policy, just as we have enforced our overall standards. And she basically goes on to threaten further disciplinary measures against people who violate this policy. Now, it's not clear if this is aimed at Felicia Sonnes because her constant attacks on her colleagues could conceivably violate this policy. I mean, she's not going to them in private and raising concerns. She's doing it in this public spectacle type way. They, again, she pioneered back when I noticed it in uh, March of last year. And, but because she got such positive reinforcement from that episode and because it paid the dividends that she was seeking, she was incentivized to continue down that path, to continue using that tactic because it had been so effective for her. Um, and you know, in, at least in this instance, in a narrow way, she got Dave Weigel suspended, um, whom, by the way, she had – characterized as a friend and so but apparently you know friendships amongst media colleagues are so shallow for the most part um, that they can at least in terms of people who have this kind of mentality that they could just be thrown aside at a moment's notice and whatever goodwill you might have accumulated can just be totally um totally abolished in the uh, in the span of time it takes to retweet it Dumb joke. Um, 
And so I guess the, the because the victim here, quote unquote, at least the person who's been subject to Felicia Sanchez's wrath is Dave Weigel, somebody who's held in high regard by much of the media, who's not seen as a quote contrarian or somebody who has who is quote heterodox, um, not seen as somebody who's you know in this whole subset of the media that people like to castigate as you know, cancel cultural free speech warrior types. In fact, he's been pretty dismissive of that cadre within the media. Um, I first became aware of Dave Weigel, maybe even around the, t- around the time I first started in the media. Um, this is 2009, 10, uh, because he was a, he was a libertarian uh, journalist. He had first worked at Reason and was covering like the Ron Paul movement uh, he was covering libertarian and Tea Party type politics, and he often did a pretty good job, at least just in an explanatory way. Uh, but it seemed like his views over time evolved as best can be ascertained anyway. I mean I, I haven't really asked him personally or directly about his views, but he seemed to become a more uh, liberal in orientation, just kind of a you know, generic liberal type. Um, he was extremely anti-Trump. Um, not that it's bad per se to be anti-Trump, but anti-Trump in this kind of reflexive, unthinking way and maybe even slightly shrieky or exaggerative way that was common among much of the media. Um, you know, but whatever disagreements I might have had about with him on the different political issues, usually you could have confidence that he would approach his reporting in a fair-minded way. I'll, I'll, I'll grant him that, and uh, I'll grant him that, again, even notwithstanding his um, handful of bizarre attacks on me that, you know, just kind of have to let go and not hold uh, a grudge over. Uh, so I, I think that because Felicia Sanchez's collateral damage in this instance was a guy like Dave Weigel, who's just very agreeable and amiable, uh, you could say, and is seen as just the quintessential nice guy within the media industry. I think that probably has caused a lot of people to rethink their view, not just of Felicia Summers, but of this whole tactic of employing your claim status as a trauma victim to demand disciplinary interventions on your behalf and to penalize colleagues and to basically just create this whole climate within the media of this annoying and stifled um, walking on eggshells mentality where you, if you say the wrong thing ever and you cause Felicia Summers to have her trauma response re-triggered, then you, the whole world was, will come bearing down on you. Um, now, I, do th- I think that only Felicia Summers, I think Felicia Summers and Taylor Renz are two very comical and extreme and almost caricaturized manifestations of this mindset. And there are other less extreme or even visible manifestations of this mindset that still pervade the media industry. So even if those two individuals or figures maybe become somewhat discredited or are viewed as ridiculous more and more within the media industry, it doesn't mean that this mentality that they embody is necessarily going to be discarded. Uh, but you do get the sense that she's at least Felicia Summers in this case, has uh, exhausted whatever benefit of the doubt 
might have been afforded to her amongst a fair number of her uh, colleagues. I think that's interesting. I don't know if that's true, like if my theory there is correct. I'm not sure how that would manifest uh, in terms of changes in policy or something at these media institutions. I think just the fact that she remains a Washington Post employee and is able to wield this kind of leverage within within the institution automatically kind of corrodes and um, you know, even just cheapens the, the journalistic environment there where you're, she's consuming so much mental energy uh, across the whole institution that she's probably the, you know, just an enormous distraction. Um, so I, I don't think – like the, the, I, I still don't think as ridiculous as she might seem to journalists increasingly – that the the underlying philosophy that she's popularized is really going to be um, scrutinized more. Where this, where you could just claim trauma or tra- claim harm, and then everybody has to rush to accommodate you and institute even editorial policies that defer to your subjective trauma claims. I don't think that's going to be necessarily revisited, um, but maybe there is a bit of at least the beginnings of a partial change in how much um, credence these kinds of actors are, um, are afforded. So that's my initial thought. I'm curious what others think. Um, if there's anybody in the media here who um, happens to have a thought, I'd be curious to hear from you as well. Oh, I see Aaron Matos here. Um, Aaron, if you want me to do a... Yeah, I mean, I'll call Aaron up just to see what thought he might have if he wants to speak. If not, if he's maybe cuddling in bed, listening to my rant, then uh, I understand. Um, and so now let's go to callers. Arena, uh, you are up. Um, <clears throat> good evening, Michael. Uh, I just want to say I'm ashamed of all women. <laughs> and I get to say that without anyone accusing me of all being, women oh, everyone every woman who's ever existed feminist <laughs> even jo- Joan of Arc is uh, spinning in her grave Joan of Arc was what a teenager wasn't she when all yeah that went something down? crazy like that yeah a, co- a couple a couple of your call-ins ago you you were talking about um I think this was in relation to the to the recent shootings about the whole the whole idea of eighteen year old eighteen versus twenty one and what is adulthood, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. This woman is almost forty years old. Yeah. All I have to say is grow up. And now, Rena, I, let me sorry to interrupt, but but you're you're a woman. How old are would how old are you? Would you mind saying? Just curious uh, to set the context. Boomer. Okay, boomer. and do you do you consider yourself a, a feminist hey. or have you? Oh, radical. Okay, dear. radical. Okay, I, interesting. I, was, I you know I I used to I used to I used to turn every every history paper I had to write in college into a femi- feminist diatribe. <laughs> uh, right. Every book I had to read. You know, I would work in feminism somehow. I was there for Ms. Magazine, et cetera, et cetera, yeah, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. 
yeah. Funded this by is, the CIA, wasn't it? This is, this is just Im- Gloria Steinem, CIA asset. Yeah. Mike, this is this is embarrassing, and I I don't I don't have any media experience, but but other other people have been saying too that this definitely applies to academia, and I you know and I I've I've basically had my jaw on the floor for about the last ten years about all of this all of this stuff about safe spaces in college classrooms. What on God's green earth is that all about? You know you you go to college. I went to college to have my ideas challenged by people who had PhDs and other people in my classes. I'm, I'm, it's baffling. It's baffling to me. I, I, I yeah. Yeah. You know, obviously um, just being you know, people might, I don't know. It's not like I'm unlike my occasional conversation partner, Richard Hanania. I, I, I'm, I'm not somebody who really focuses on, questions of feminism and kind of related political topics. Um, so, but I think people might just infer that I'm this strident anti-feminist, you know, rabble rouser or something. Um, that honestly is not how I've ever regarded myself. Um, maybe this is trivial or silly or insignificant, um, I'm sorry about the background noise. Not much I can do in my uh, Jersey City dwelling. Um, but I, I actually do vividly recall that one of the most persuasive and lucid texts that I read when I first entered college um, and took my in my very first semester, you know, a political uh, history, I think, of political philosophy course um, was. The Subjection of Women by John Stuart Mill. I'm not sure if John Stuart Mill is still seen as somebody who feminists would regard as a uh, fellow traveler. Um, but John Stuart Mill made a very, you know, almost unimpeachably persuasive case that uh, women, at least at that time, were being sub- quote-unquote subjected. Um, and you know, he was very instrumental in, in uh, bolstering the women's suffrage movement and so on and so forth. Now, obviously, there are diff- these are different times. We're not talking today about whether women should have the right to vote. Um, I just wanted to mention that just to at least give some context as to where uh, I'm coming from. I realize that maybe agreeing with the persuasiveness of feminist arguments circa 1860-something is not really a huge well, that, bar to clear, that, but still. That- that's all right, though. You know, there there were women. There were women. Uh, there were women anarchists in Russia. They they helped to assassinate the czar. Uh, when when all this is leading to, in my humble opinion, all all this does is underpin people who have who have said, "Oh, women should probably stay to home." Because, you know, they're just not emotionally equipped to be in the workplace. I cannot imagine ever thinking that at my, that at my job, they were responsible for my emotional well-being. In the first I know, place, that's amazing, I never right? wanted anybody groveling, at my job. Groveling to, ma- groveling to your boss to provide for your emotional I never well-being. wanted anybody at my job, even unless it was a very close friend, to know anything about my emotional state. 
I was at my job to do my job and then to go home and live my life, you know, <laughs> not, not, not to have my, the Washington post for God's sake be required to coddle me and, and my, and my little tiny fragile, frail female emotions. This, this is, I, I'm appalled. That's all I have to say. I am. Appalled. Rita, one, yes. one, one more question for you. And thank you. Cause this is very interesting. What do you think accounts for what appears to be a generational divide. Now, I'm sure you know, there's always been many strains of feminisms. I'm sure I don't have to t- remind you. Um, always been robust debate among feminists um, and you know, plenty of grudges th- over the years that developed um, between the different prominent feminists. So this is nothing new in that sense. But I guess just in general terms, what do you think – is this apparent generational divide? And what do you think explains it? I, I don't know if I can explain it. Um, the, the, the particular examples, Taylor Lorenz and this woman, and um, let's throw Nomiki Const into this just for fun. Uh-oh, you're going to um, get me in trouble. Seem like... <laughs> Uh, I don't care. I, Glenn Greenwald's already in trouble for all of it, so <laughs> yeah. you can destroy him. Well, he's in, a, he's in a perpetual state of trouble. Good trouble, like John <laughs> yes, Lewis he, recommended. Yes, it, exactly. But they they seem to be, oh, here's an impolitic word. They seem to be kind of privileged women. I will say that. You know, we've got, we've got some Harvard and some Greenwich... Connecticut and Swiss finishing schools and this and that and the other. Uh, I don't know. Is, is that the thing? Is it, I don't know, too much Montessori education or something? Did did this start with the whole give everybody the trophy thing, no competition? I don't know. I, I don't know where it comes from, but I, I, I look at these women and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, the, uh, what, what has happened? What has happened to us all? This is, it's just sad. I'm sad. I'm sad for them. Yeah. You know, every time I talk about these kinds of issues, and I haven't done it in actually a while because I've been a little bit preoccupied with the war in Ukraine, uh, as you might be aware. Yeah. But um, yeah, well, whenever that, I do talk about trivia. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah but whenever that, I do talk about it. You know, I try compared to WAPO newsroom shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is trivia in comparison to that, uh, but there are some actual consequential implications here for how the media industry is structured. And the media industry, for better or worse, very often worse, does have a huge effect, at least on elite culture. Um, and so if we're talking about the New York Times and the Washington Post, I mean, you can't just ignore those institutions. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, it, it is actually necessary to keep apprised of trends that appear to be per- prevailing within them. Um, but I was just going to say that, you know, whenever I do mention, whenever I do uh, on occasion br- uh, discuss these topics, it's actually pretty heartening because almost invariably I hear from women like yourself um, tend to be maybe a bit older than the women that I'm talking about, uh, but still, um, who expressed almost this exact sentiment. Um, 
So, you know, it's, it's at least helpful in that it gives me some measure of confidence that I'm not just um, ranting aimlessly from my standpoint of like myopic male privilege or something. No, if you're a myop- myopic male, I'm a myopic old female and proud of it because, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be part of this particular cohort at all. They, thanks for your time. Interesting topic for sure. And now I'll let the guys yeah. talk. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Rena. And uh, now back to our uh, previously scheduled sausage fest. <laughs> um, Bruce, you're up. Bruce, if you're there, uh, you got to unmute. If you're new to Colin, that the unmute button is in the bottom right-hand corner. Bruce going once. Bruce going twice. Okay, Bruce, uh, feel free to rejoin the queue if uh, you're around still. And uh, happy to bring you back up. All right, Eric, a.k.a. Michael. Trauma. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Jeez. Is hey, did you that tweet about um bipolar disorder? Do you, it's she sort of reacted uh quite strongly to it. Like seemed like it made her alternatingly uh very rageful, but then really depressed, and then she felt like a very strong emotion of like righteous outrage. So it's kind of like a euphoria. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, she didn't her, – her reaction didn't seem to refute the premise of the joke. Well, you know, I don't want to be on caddish, okay? It's a word that people, you know uh, – maybe it sounds like an old word. But I don't want to be, you know, too rude, okay? I want to give her the benefit. I want to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. But I'm sorry. It's, it's going to sound perhaps like I'm bringing the conversation a little low, but I'm going to say what's – I think going on in the country, I don't know, at least in the media sphere, has been largely affected by the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp case. Um, So it's kind of hard for me to, uh, well, I think it's, okay. I don't know if you saw there was the Vice Vice article, but the way that they reported it, and the one lady, or the one reporter, she said, um, uh, 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 women have been seeing that now they're going to have their rights to, to, to an abortion and to speak out against abuse taken away. And it's like, okay, maybe it seems like that if you, you know, look at it from a very, 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 very specific point of view. But if you kind of zoom out, you should kind of see, you know, and at the end of the day, I think, okay, another big part of this is one of the things I've noticed from like the Amber Heard defenders, you know, I don't want to tell tales out of school, but I think it's pretty well established that she had, you know, this borderline personality um, and that um, uh, uh, she she, um, uh, my, my point with that is that there are people in this world who think that there is no such thing as borderline personality disorder. So it, part of me is speculating like this thing where it's like um, there's been this movement or something because I, 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 try, I really do like, for example, like I'd like keeping up with radical feminists like and, you know, what their memes are and what their going ons are because I've, I've learned a lot of interesting things from them, interesting perspectives, but it's like any other movement or ideology I find interesting. You know, I kind of see, well, what's their pers- – so what's their take on this? Like, you know, white it's nationalism, their- feminism, et cetera. I want to keep up with what the white nationalists are saying about, um, <laughs> you know what, there's this white nationalist memes going around where it's this um, 
there's a drag queen doing a kid's show. And I went to college with that drag queen. <laughs> I know who that is. So um, it's weird how sometimes though these things. I, I, so anyways, I like to keep track of what the world's going on around me. And um, um, part of this is, is that um, uh, the, it's it's the death. It's when they called the, when they called the Amber Heard thing the death of Me Too. Okay, that I think when you gave that extra because um, I didn't know all that about her previous experiences with Me Too, and of course I'm making no judgment as to whether or not you know um, something very awful happened to her. It's it's similar with Amber Heard because as much you mean Felicia Summers' previous experiences with Me Too. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I mean, if people, if people are interested, um, the definitive article to read on this is uh in reason magazine um and you know i think maybe some people might roll their eyes because it's a libertarian magazine but you know uh but you know i've actually contributed to reason years ago and um you know i think the reason the reason why this article appeared in reason is uh because you know it just wouldn't be able to have in place anywhere else and it was written by uh, you know a, a pretty accomplished woman journalist uh, Emily Yaffe who's a contributing writer at the Atlantic and notably the piece did not appear in the Atlantic it was in uh, August of 2019 um, so just type in Emily Yaffe uh, Felicia Sumnez reason and uh, you should get that article uh, if you're curious I think it's 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 worth reading yeah, I mean, I, I that reminds me of my own personal thing because you bring up Emily Yaffe. And she's Basically, been- I mean, just to, just to summarize, oh, um, and you know, this is not this is just going on everything that's reported publicly. So I don't have any, I'm not di- disclosing any private information. Although I have taught, as I mentioned before, I have talked to people who have private insights. Um, Felicia Sanchez, as Me Too was heating up, accused a journalist at the Los Angeles Times who she had some sort of relations with in China when they were both kind of young foreign correspondents of, um, of raping her, sexual, sexually assaulting her. And uh, this was vigorously denied by the journalist. Um, but his life was essentially ruined. Um, he was fired by the Los Angeles Times he uh, had a book deal canceled and uh, you know, became, as he says in the headline, uh, radioactive. Um, and I think it's fair to say that there are serious questions about the veracity of the allegations that she leveled, notwithstanding how she uses them now as this ammunition to just assert as fact that endows her with this right to issue um, demands uh, on the basis of her being a self-proclaimed uh, trauma survivor. Well, when you put it like that, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, uh, so let's go, let's take it the other way though. So let's, cause, um, you know, I was, I mean, I was trying to do a little preface there and just say, I'm trying to be charitable towards her, but let's take it the other way. Let's take it. So, okay. This is somebody who fabricates things in her life or who has a history or has some kind of, Thing you know, it was like with Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, but like. Well, let's just I mean, just just just, just to cover my own ass, I guess. Let's just, let's not yes. let's, <laughs> let's not state as fact that she fabricated anything. I don't think we have to go that far to kind of 
you know, entertain this right. analysis. Right. I don't want to impute um, proposing. Uh, you know, fabrication implies you know that connotes uh, intentionality that I don't want to. Uh, right. Exactly. Right. And I and I do think that she's very sincere. I, mean, I think that's in part why she's very effective. Well, you know, it's the it's but like you say, it's the non-falsifiability of her sincerity. I guess I would say because it's like, is she sincere? Do we have? Are we allowed to? How would we judge sincerity at this point? Because of um, you know, it's like when you said that they the case was dismissed with prejudice. That means you know it was found to be a baseless claim, essentially, right? So, um, but uh, and but but like I guess and the idea of. You know, the crazy thing I was noticing with Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, um, sorry to bring it back there, but is that like they would say with Amber Heard, it's like, what, she's supposed to be a perfect victim? But it's like, well, look at it from the other point of view. Is Johnny Depp supposed to be a perfect victim? Um, You have to look at like the totality of the evidence. So the problem is, is, of course, I mean, believe all women, you know, we have way too many of these slogans in our politics and where it's you say the slogan, but then you say now, of course, it doesn't actually mean right. So it's like, of course, it doesn't actually mean other lives don't matter. Of course, it doesn't actually mean get rid of all the police. You know, of course, it doesn't actually mean it's like, can we just, you know, of course, it doesn't actually believe all women literally because, um, you know, you shouldn't believe a woman who lies. So that's one of the things I notice is that like um, when I went to the Radlib forums or not, yeah, the radical feminist forums and they go, uh, a lot of them post about it's so sad to see other women siding with Johnny Depp, and then they just the the the, the main comment underneath is like, well, women are always hating other women, and it's just like oh, the layers of irony. I wonder because I do find you know I, I I give a lot of people like I think a lot of radical feminists you know point out a lot of things about like male criminality and things like that that I think are very you know astute and should be brought into the conversation. But then it's one of those things where it's like, I mean, do you kind of want to disqualify somebody for like believing somebody who you see as an absolute pathological narcissist? Like, um, actually, that's the general question I want to ask you before I take up too much more time. But it's like, do you think there is a like cluster B personality disorder narcissism problem in American society today uniquely getting worse as opposed to other times in history you know in politics um, you know I, I find it very difficult to answer that question given the lack of empirical foundation that I have to make such a judgment uh, anecdotally um, impressionistically, yeah, it seems like perhaps a more and more pressing issue, um, at least within certain fields. But, I mean, I can't really say with any certainty. And I do tend to dislike, I want to try to be consistent because, you know, in the field of punditry, there's often a tendency to psychoanalyze politicians or public figures, you know, do this armchair analysis of their deep, dark, interior personality traits. And I find that genre of punditry to almost always be very frivolous and ridiculous and facile. Um, So I don't want to necessarily indulge in it myself. Um, And that's why I tend to more just base my conclusions off of what certain people <laughs> have said. So it doesn't require a psychoanalytic approach that you know, I obviously don't have access to their thoughts in order to be able to conduct. Um, uh, how about, how about and, if I, you know, and, and Felicia Sanmez and Taylor Lorenz have been very open about their psychological 
turmoil. So it's not like you have to really speculate. Now, now on the on the on Amber Heard, it's sort of interesting because, um, you know, when that trial, I mean, people have been uh, in ascribing some kind of malevolence to the fact that that trial got a lot of attention on social media and like YouTube algorithmically promoted clips of it and whatnot. Um, the idea being that there was like disinformation that was the source of why that became such an object of fascination and we need to like crack down on tech or regulate YouTube and whatever um, to make sure that the harm that that amplification caused is combated. And, um, you know, when I first, I, I'm not somebody who had been followed the ins and outs of the Johnny Depp Amber Heard saga over the years. I had been peripherally aware of it just because, you know, Johnny Depp is one of the biggest movie stars in the world and I'm aware of Johnny Depp. I've seen Pirates of the Caribbean, whatever. Um, but I did end up getting sort of more interested than I would have thought on the su- in, in the substance of the trial because in, in part it's just irresistible in its kind of salaciousness. Um, but it also I actually thought that there were some important potential uh, implications for it, especially because it had become so socially or culturally prominent. Uh, and so I, I did watch um, at least you know, chunks of it here and there, uh, meaning of the trial. Um, I was tuned in live when the verdict was read. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not one of the people who just dismissed it as, oh, I don't care about the Celeste celebrity uh, gossip. Um, I mean, I think, you, you know, you could have maybe dismissed the O.J. Simpson trial back in the 90s on the same grounds. I mean, the only reason that that particular double murder was so <laughs> prominent is because uh, O.J. Simpson was a huge celebrity in, in his own right. Um, so, you know, sometimes you just have to just accept that celebrity magnifies these, these trends and uh, analyze accordingly. But uh, I just wanted to mention on the Amber Heard Johnny Depp verdict, uh, there was a column in the New York Times on June 2nd by Michelle Goldberg on the verdict. And if you're familiar with Michelle Goldberg, at all, uh, you could probably already guess what she had to say about it. Um, but the headline was, The Amber Heard Verdict Was a Travesty Others Will Follow. And so here's, the, here's how she opened the column. The verdict in Johnny Depp's defamation suit against his ex-wife Amber Heard is difficult to explain logically. The confounding part isn't that the jury sided with him over her. This is the country that elected Donald Trump, where the convicted domestic abuser Chris Brown is still a major pop star and where a man in Indiana recently won a local Republican primary while in jail awaiting trial on charges of murdering his wife. The explosion of defiant, desperate feminist energy that was Me Too has now been smothered by an even fiercer reaction. Me Too was a movement of women telling their stories. Now that Heard has been destroyed for identifying as a survivor, other women will think twice. Um, So that's basically her take and, you know, entirely predictable if you're familiar with Michelle Goldberg. But I, the, this column of hers actually went really viral. Um, again, not surprising given the subject matter. And I only mentioned it because I actually wanted to note the comment section in the New York Times. The comment section of the New York Times is structured in a way that the most recommended comments come to the top. And um, yeah, there's editorial oversight exerted over these comments. Um, and I thought it was really interesting uh, which comments rose to the top in the New York Times 
you know, mind you, not in some right-wing uh, cesspool media outlet. Uh, because, you know, we, what Michelle Goldberg was essentially doing is conflating or connecting the Amber Heard verdict uh, to larger trends in American political and cultural life that she regards as like intrinsically misogynistic. Um, and basically, by implication, accusing the jury in Virginia that ruled on this case of just being kind of another manifestation of this attitude that gave rise to the example, for the, for example, of the, to the election of Trump. Um, so, I mean, I, it doesn't really appear that uh, Michelle Goldberg spent a whole lot of time covering the actual details of the case, or if she did, she is, um, she was able to compartmentalize a lot of what was revealed in the trial. Anyway, here's the, here's the top comment. Um, 4,400 recommended, like gave it, uh, 4,400 people gave like effectively a thumbs up on this comment. This is the number one comment on the article. I am really starting to get sick of these partial articles of the cherry-picked facts of the caveats and concessions for Amber Side when presenting this trial in the media. I am a progressive, a feminist, work in human rights. I am not a conservative or a wild Johnny Depp, Johnny Depp TikTok fan. I watched the whole trial. I was on Heard's side for years, but it was clear as the trial went on that it is very likely that Heard has fabricated the allegations. Something absolutely heinous to do to destroy someone else's life. Please, Michelle, don't be dishonest here. Everyone watching the trial could see the facts as they were presented. Most people are smart enough to infer their own conclusions that Heard acted with malice. And uh, pretty much every other comment that rose to the top of this thread uh, echoes a similar sentiment. Um, so it seems like you know journalists and media and, and such uh, who want to take an interpretation of the verdict as this horrible infringement on me too um they're getting a lot of pushback at least online uh from people who aren't just like raving conservatives yeah there were some you know one one reason why michelle Goldberg says she wrote this column was because some you know this house republican committee i think the house judiciary uh minority uh, for the republican caucus uh, you know, tweeted like a stupid gif of Johnny Depp celebrating as Jack Sparrow when the verdict came out. So that was her, her was evidence that, that this is like reaction uh, triumphing or something. Um, but uh, you know, there's a there's a pretty obvious groundswell of antagonism toward media figures who would just kind of twist the verdict in accordance with their kind of preordained uh, narrative about you know, the uh, virtues of Me Too being undermined by this uh, misogynistic reaction. Um, so how that relates to Somnes, I'm not sure that necessarily people are thinking about that episode uh, by reference to the Depp Heard outcome. Um, but, you know, clearly the Depp Heard trial outcome is in the ether at the moment, so you know, maybe it has some influence. All right. Uh, thanks, as always, Eric. Going to go to Gary. Hey, what's going on, Mike? Hey. hey what's doing up, well. Man? How are you? Doing well, doing well. Can't complain. 
so um, so my my take on this issue with regards to Felicia Somnes, which kind of comes after a controversy, another controversy with Taylor Lorenz, is that in a lot of ways, when you see people criticize them rightly in mass, unfortunately and ironically, what it ends up doing is increasing their profile and increasing increasing their power. Because as you know, as somebody who's been in, in the business for so long, print media is pretty much like pretty much dead. And thus the currency within those walls are, you know, literally profile, literally fame and and how many people pay attention to who you are. So with that being said, the it turns out that the most infamous of the employees at these places, whether it be the Taylor Lorenz or the Felicia Somnes or um, the lady who wrote the 1619 Project at, at New York Times, these people who are able to command a lot of passionate attention actually Nicole turn out Hannah to be Jones. The, Nicole Hannah-Jones, thank you, um, who, who command so much passionate attention actually turn out to be the people with the highest profile within those buildings and newsrooms, which make them actually the most influential and indispensable staff members there. So when I see people like Felicia Somnes, I always intuitively think that the the perfect reaction would be to simply ignore her and never pay attention to anything she ever does. But the opposite is what happens, obviously, with the Streisand effect. We we live but never learn. We all we all just turn and pay attention and send all of our energy, which and like I said, as you know, as for somebody who makes his money on the internet. That energy gets transmuted into gold. And so literally all we're doing is sending Felicia Somnes all this energy that she can leverage um, when she puts the gun to Washington Post's head and says, hey, by the way, I'm actually more important individually than you are as an institution. And if you get on my bad side, I'm actually the one on the on the with the high ground here. And <sighs> Yeah, I mean, you know, th- this is an interesting point, and I think it relates to like a fundamental paradox just of the social media age, right? Because responding to someone who you feel has made a mistaken argument or who you feel is behaving egregiously in one way or another, whether they're a journalist or not, inevitably, given the incentive structure of social media, is going to result in amplifying them. Um, so you do have to, and I'm probably not the best at weighing these pros and cons in my own daily conduct on social media. Um, but you do have to weigh how much, whether it's worth, uh, giving, uh, air to these types of people, um, by criticizing them or by pointing out their faults or, or, or whatever. I think in the case of journalists who work at the New York Times, it's already a given that their influence justifies proffering these kinds of critiques because it doesn't even necessarily pertain to them. It pertains to the culture at these massively influential institutions that have an outsized effect on American politic, politics and culture and actually on, on world politics and culture. Um, so, yeah, there is... There is a, uh, a paradoxical dynamic there. At the same time, though, as you were speaking, a thought occurred to me, and I'm sort of curious what you might think about this. Obviously, somebody like Taylor Lorenz has a certain profile, 
given the controversies that she's involved in and given the kind of journalism that she does, which is very social media centric. And when I say social media centric, I don't necessarily mean that as an insult uh, because you could argue that I'm, what I do is social media centric in a way. Like if I, I wouldn't be able to, as you note, you know, make money off the internet um, if not for the social media presence that I have you know, developed over the years. So I'm not, I'm not trying to be needlessly uh, derogatory of that. Um, but I, I, when you were speaking, I almost wonder like what somebody like David Sanger thinks of this argument. And you might even not be familiar with the name David Sanger, but David Sanger is like this longtime national security correspondent for the New York times. Um, Whenever there's a kind of central foreign policy issue that is, you know, leading the news, he's more or less guaranteed to be leading the coverage that the New York Times does. Um, again, going back decades now. Um, so, you know, if you look at, I just pulled up his author bio, and he's, you know, covering uh, Ukraine policy and uh, sanctions on Russia and. Putin and all this. And um, just by dint of David Sanger having such outsized control over how the New York Times covers foreign policy or national security issues, um, David Sanger is one of the most influential people in the country, if not the world. And so just because he doesn't have a brash or a flashy or controversial social media presence doesn't mean that he is somehow less quote unquote influential than like a Taylor Lorenz or a Felicia Sanchez, right? Um, so I guess that's all just to say my sort of incomplete thought is that maybe we shouldn't overstate the genuine nature of the influence that people who are kind of comical and ridiculous like Lorenz or Asanas actually have in comparison to others in the industry who managed to keep a bit more of a, I mean, I mean, low profile is not the right way to put it, but just comport themselves in a more traditional way. I mean, you say print is dead. New York Times still has a very robust print newspaper. Um, USA Today, I think, is saying that their print newspaper is profitable. It's sort of like an ancillary point. Uh, but I, I guess I just mentioned that because there is a subset of people within the media industry who don't involve themselves, at least ostensibly, in these sort of social media-centric controversies and don't need to cultivate social media influence in order to have influence in other respects. Um, so I, I'm not making like a conclusive argument there. I'm just sort of giving a, an underdeveloped thought that occurred to me as you were speaking. And, and that's that's a very good point, actually. There are people at the at these papers that are, are going to actually be more important from a substance standpoint. But I'm speaking more so about actually going up against the paper in a public forum. And I feel like the amount of public leverage that Taylor Lorenz and Felicia Sanmez have against their own paper has all been um, sort of gathered by these social media flare-ups, um, whereas this um, national security uh, yeah, I think reporter, that's true. I think that's yeah, true. He, his his influence comes from his merit, 
but you know it wouldn't nearly be as great in a public spat with the New York Times as a Taylor Lorenz public spat with the Washington Post based simply on social media garnered infamy because of how many people are very passionate about who she is as a human being. You know, it's like a, she's an influencer. Like she's transcended journalism. She's now an influencer. And so in, in, in a lot of ways, that the value of that is it, it's invaluable if you're running a newsroom. You know, even if you have better people on the merits, it's important to have an influencer level person. And these influencer level people in the newsroom are garnering that by social media controversy. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's yeah. right. Um, and I wasn't even bringing up David Sanger necessarily to uh, impute, impute to him like meritorious yeah. uh, status. Um, just uh, I was just observing that he commands a great deal of influence and his influence derives from a source that is wholly distinct from whatever source confers influence upon like a Taylor Lorenz or a, or Sondas. But I think you're right in that to the degree that they have accumulated this leverage against their institutions, it's because of this sort of like public spectacle that they're able to perform. Um, you know, that's, that's why when I was talking about my first sort of brush, I guess you could say, with Somnus uh, in, in March of 2021, it was, it was in reaction to the incredible success that her extremely effusive and emotionally intense uh, Twitter thread uh, yielded for her. Um, it caused it caused the Washington Post to immediately capitulate, and uh, you know she caused the Washington Post to immediately capitulate with uh, with Weigel, notwithstanding how uh, how high regard he's generally held in by uh, most people in, in the industry. Again, not seen as somebody who's like an ideological interloper, not like somebody who can be tied to Barry Weiss or something. You know, just a kind of a nice guy type reporter who doesn't rock the boat all that much in terms of his. Uh, political or journalistic orientation um so yeah I, I guess you know the 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 question though building on that though that also occurred to me and sort of prompted me to start this room was if if there might be a a bit of a shift in how much tolerance or um deference people in the media are willing to extend to uh figures like lorenz and and uh on this. I, I do think that with 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 Dave Weigel as a uh, as the collateral damage, um, there's there is a shift that's probably developing. Um, uh, I kind of wish there were journal other journalists uh, in this room, although I guess they don't they don't like me enough to join my call in, so I could get their perspective. And uh, Aaron, I'm sure is is preoccupied with something far more important. Not to, intimidating. To yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, thanks, Gary. All right, take care, family. Uh, Vin, you are up. Oh, what's up, man? Um, hey, how's it going? I'm kind of. I just. I'm kind of. I guess my thing is, kind of looking at this from the outside. I haven't spent my entire life in the West, but it's, I've noticed this this idea that's. Really Where'd you spend other parts of your life? Just curious. Uh, Africa, Middle East. Mostly, okay, mostly Africa, um, Canada as well, U.S. But I would say sixty forty outside of North America. But mm -hmm. it's this idea that I'm kind of noticing of this um, 
uh, at an institutional level, this infantilization of minorities, specifically women. I mean, you get it with racial minorities as well. I mean, I mean I'm not white, but um, so I've seen it. Are we considering people. women a minority, though? I mean, I think they probably would be constitute the majority at this point of the, the media. Oh, they're industry. not. I yeah. mean, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. It's just sort of funny that the term minority would be attributed to women as a collective, you know? Yeah, I know. But I guess that's how it goes now. But it's almost like this, these honestly sexist childlike uh, attributes that they, these institutions have accepted as uh, kind of a base assumption of how women are, that they are these childlike beings that, can't make decisions in the moment and who can't handle public criticism because it's so hard being, you know, a woman journalist who makes a shit ton of money and writing for the Washington Post when she gets a couple of people that say mean things on Twitter, which are usually actually in the hidden tweet section, so she probably doesn't even see them. It's, I mean... Where has this idea come from? Especially this idea of like, like women and other minorities can't handle public criticism. But like the cynical view is that it's a pretty terrific uh, weapon to yield. I mean, you see, I mean, just look at the Washington Post. Look how terrified they are of uh, the Somnes person. Uh, I remember when she came out when uh, Kobe Bryant tragically passed away. Uh, and it's like it wasn't even an hour after he was dead, announced dead that she tweeted that, oh, he should burn in hell because he's a rapist or something like that. And people were well, just well, just 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 to clarify for the record, because I know I know the incident that you're talking about. It's funny. I was in I was in New Hampshire covering the primary at that time, so I was sort of um, half following it. Um, but. I actually do, did think at that time she had a legitimate grievance because she, all she did, she didn't say that Kobe Bryant should burn in hell. She tweeted an article in the Daily Beast, if memory serves, um, and just, just basically went on the Daily Beast article and clicked the Twitter share button and tweeted out the headline of that article. Um, she didn't even add any additional commentary, and it was an article, yeah, about his uh, rape case from the early uh, 2000s so you know i i wouldn't have tweeted that at that time um Especially I, you know Kobe I, fans. yeah uh, but I, I also don't think it was so out of bounds for her to do this that she ought to have been punished and i, I remember thinking actually the reaction uh to her, to that pretty innocuous tweet about a public figure was was over overdone um but you know that's that's totally separate from other tactics that she subsequently employed to get her way. Well, yeah, I mean, it's this idea that you can just, okay, maybe that's not the best example, but I, I, I think she was fair to tweet that. It's fine. You can tweet whatever you want, but uh, I also feel like people can say what they want in return, which is fine, but this idea of like, oh, I can't handle this, this criticism, it's, or it's a powerful weapon to yield because you look how terrified... Her bosses are of her. I mean, it's kind of crazy. Um, I would also... Um, there was a story, actually, that was pretty interesting uh, with this... Uh, in Ukraine, there was this... Uh, I think she was a human rights ombudsman. 
her name was something Denisova. Um, she had come out and said that there was these. Uh, I think she told the BBC. Yeah, this was this was this was somebody who worked. If I if I, I think I know where you're going, I think this was someone who worked in the Ukraine prosec- national prosecutor's office, who had made allegations about rape being used as like a weapon of war by Russian troops, and yeah. this woman was just dismissed by the Ukrainian parliament like a week or so ago uh, because at least what the rationale given was, was that the, um, she had not established adequate evidence to make these claims. And, and therefore it was sort of a distraction according to the, or it, 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 it um, inhibited the ability of the Ukrainian government to actually pursue legitimate claims. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, that's fair. I mean, then, you know, they made their own decision. But I think, I, you know, that what whatever that was, I was more interested in the reaction was a lot of Western journalists were um, kind of taking that story and reflecting it to themselves, saying, you know, this is this is what it's like to be one of us, you know, trying to report the news and blah, 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 blah. I was just like, it's just unbelievable the ability to that um, these people who are incredibly well off and privileged in society and how they can just make things about them and weaponize it in a very it's cynical but weaponize it in such a way that they're able to um, you know get what they want out of their institutions because the institutions themselves have accepted these kind of uh, axioms of uh, of being if you will. Um, so I, I just find it, and it's kind of like in a way, I'm like, man, I'm not even mad at you because that's pretty smart, but it's it, it's pretty bad for you know public discourse. I don't know. Yeah, you know, uh, a, a reason why I I covered <laughs> this whole issue of therapeutic trauma jargon becoming like the lingua lingua frank uh, lingua franca of the um, kind of this new generation of media online media stars um is because the whole logic undergirding their claims to special status or to victim status um was being progressively codified and legitimized by by major institutions so it wasn't just that you have these occasional eccentric characters who maybe have certain psychological problems and, you know, uh, launch crusades to get this or that professionally or socially. Um, but that this was now, this logic was being absorbed into the very fabric of major institutions in, in media and therefore becoming like the dominant ethos. And and one example of that, that I gave in 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 a follow up article, I just pulled up, this is from April 2nd, 2021 was um, a report, a sprawling report that was published by Penn America um, last year. And, and Penn America is basically, it's like a nonprofit organization that's basically almost like the flagship organization for, for writers in the, in the U.S. Uh, to defend you know, free expression and, and, and whatnot. And it encompasses journalism, but also, you know, novelists and poets and other kind of people in the writing Field and they published this um, 
report called No Excuse for Abuse in, uh, in 2021. And um, in the report, they, it, it was all about journalists being ab- ab- abused by way of what we, they called online violence. Um, and it said that uh, journalists are, quote, disproportionately targeted for this kind of abuse and are finding that their, quote, voices are silenced. And, of course, they focused on – and then they, they made recommendations for how journalists can be better accommodated, particularly by the tech, tech platforms and also by their, the management of, of their publications. And um, in, the, in the report, it said, quote, Pan America has rooted our recommendations in the experiences and needs of writers – has rooted our recommendations in the experiences and needs of writers and journalists who identify as women, BIPOC, LGBTQIA+, and as members of religious or ethnic minorities. So, you know, <laughs> I kind of uh, half-jokingly challenged your characterization of women as a minority group. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that, that, that really is taken deathly seriously as a legitimate descriptor by these major uh, institutions. And... Um, yeah, so, so uh, even as this sort of logic was percolating, um, you, you saw it more and more being legitimized by major institutions. That, that, that I think, is, more, is why I was compelled to cover it. And you know, one thing that was really notable in my reading of that report was that they really didn't define – they really didn't define their key terms – they didn't really give a universalizable definition of what online quote harassment or abuse even was. Exactly. Um, because you know when I wrote about Sonnes, you know the, it, it generated a huge, a big pushback, and people were calling for Substack to be censored, and 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 that sort of thing. And um, in the follow up article, I just quoted what one particular Twitter activist said. Um, and this is not a, not a journalist, but this is somebody who is well known in the media field. And I'm not don't necessarily have to have, don't even necessarily have to give her name, but she was somebody who was an organizer of the Charlottesville uh, counter protest in 2017, so it became very prominent based on that. Um, but here's what she here's what she called me. <laughs> this was on Twitter, quote: "A little piss pants crybaby who would collapse under the weight of the kind of harassment he incites." Okay, so. As I note in the piece, I'm fully in favor of enshrining like the eternal right of this person, and she goes by socialist dog mom on Twitter, to call me a little piss pants crybaby. That's fair game. You know, I'm a quasi-public figure. I write about contentious issues. I choose. To, I do this voluntarily. Nobody's forcing me to post on Substack or Twitter. Um, but it, it, it's not clear to me... <laughs> Why, just presumptively, that attack by her on me, which again I accept is fine, um, wouldn't constitute abuse or harassment per the standards that have been promulgated um, by the people who are who view online harassment of journalists as like this uh, era-defining problem, and it's because they don't have a neutral definition of what harassment is. Um, they they do it. They so very. They selectively deploy their grievances around harassment, um, usually in accordance with a certain kind of overlaying identity-based 
worldview, and that has the ultimate effect of you know, bolstering the claims and even professional uh, ambitions of a certain group, certain groups of people within the media industry. Um, so, yeah, it's. Um, uh, I guess, in other words, if I were to make, if I were to do an emotional thread about how people harshly criticizing me on Twitter or giving me death threats or whatever, um, how, how I deserve special consideration and treatment on the basis of that, that would be laughed off as absurd. How could I be entitled to such treatment, right? Um, but in the case of others, it's supposed to be taken extremely seriously, and there's really no rationale given for that discrepancy other than <laughs> that this whole harassment slash harm slash abuse whatever trauma framework is deployed extremely selecti- selectively based on certain kind of political or cultural considerations so yeah sorry you uh well yeah i, I just predict that these uh i think these institutions are going to eat themselves alive i don't think it's going to continue like this um, no i mean people yeah, always predict the downfall of these institutions and they keep plugging away so not the downfall <laughs> but i mean just the change in accepting these a lot of these ideas. i don't know how much longer someone like felicia summers can you know uh, flex her muscle yeah like i said i think there's a the tide is probably somewhat turning against some of the most ridiculous examples of this mindset such as Felicia Summers or Taylor Lorenz. But again, as I mentioned earlier, I really don't think that's going to have any more, any kind of far-reaching effect on the kind of underlying logic of trauma being something that must be always respected in this melodramatic sense. And um, I, I, In other words, I don't think that means it portends that just because Sondes and Lorenz are going to f- are falling out of favor, I don't think it portends that the industry overall is discarding this n- new ethos around kind of therapeutic trauma jargon, if that makes sense. No, I feel you, man. I'm out there, but I, I, yeah. I think you deserve sympathy for being called a reactionary. All <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nah, it's all right. I can handle it. All right, uh, thanks, Vin, and uh, going to go to hashtag no war, who's apparently the Final caller. Anybody who um, was on the queue before and maybe didn't speak because of a technical issue or whatever, uh, you know, feel free to come back if you'd like. Hey, Michael. Hey. Uh, so, a couple of things. You know, I'm a fan of comedy and joking and laughing, and I kind of thought, you know, a good good part of a joke is that. There's a little truth to it, but it's over the top. And I thought the joke was funny. And I've not always been the biggest. Dave I characterized it as mildly right. amusing. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I didn't laugh out loud, but I, and, and and every every woman who I spoke to about it also found it mildly amusing. <laughs> yeah, I, I told I told a woman about it, and she she actually laughed out loud. She thought it was funny. And I didn't, I chuckled at it, but you know, whatever. I, so that's to say, you know, 
I, I just don't support going after people for, you know, mild jokes on the internet. Um, and I, I believe the person that tweeted that is a, a comedian. But, you know, the thing I want to go back to is, and it sounds like you've been a, a, aware of Weigel for roughly about the same amount of time as I have. I remember, you know, uh, Ezra Klein, who I did used to appreciate a lot more before he became really proximate to the establishment and a protector of the establishment. You know, back when he was first coming up as a blogger, it was, you know, was a data-driven kind of wonky little nerd kid. Um, and I appreciate that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, Ezra used to put out a lot of graphs and, and use a lot of data to make decent points. And then he started getting access and and kind of lost his edge, in my opinion. And I, I, you know, Ezra was a lot smaller back in the day and I used to have conversations directly with him. And when I saw that turn, told them that. But, you know, the first time uh, Weigel was at, Wa at WAPO back around 2009 and 10 was, I think, because Ezra Klein, you know, suggested him to the people at, at Washington Post. And there was that thing back then called... Uh, yeah, Ezra Klein was running Wonk Blog, I believe, at that point. Yeah. At Washington exactly. Post, yeah. Yeah, after he left... Uh, think he was at tap or the american prospect yeah yeah exactly wow you're 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 more you're almost as in the weeds of the <laughs> of uh inside baseball uh media history uh, as i am so congratulations well, i i followed ezra closely back then and and you know i used to like krugman and brad delong and felix Sanders yeah yeah and and you know and 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 chris hayes back then chris hayes is Chris Hayes in 2010 was a, a much better journalist than Chris Hayes in 2022. You know, he's he's he wrote that book Twilight of the Elites back then. Yeah, yeah. I read it. I read it when it came out, 2012. Yeah. It's actually a great book. Great point. And then he fell victim to his exact point, which is, you know, the the hilarity in that is not ever gotten past me. But all that is to say, like, there was that journalist thing that that Weigel got in trouble for because he was saying, you know, he was following conservatives then. That was his beat. That was what Washington Post had him doing. And he got in trouble, right? Because he said some something, I think, about Drudge or and maybe a few other conservatives on this little insider journalist forum that, you know, all these kind of progressive or liberal journalists were all in back then that Ezra Klein created. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm case, in case people are unaware. <laughs> um, it's, we are in the weeds. Yeah, we're in the weeds. But, but back in uh, 2010, uh, um, a listserv, an email listserv that a lot of journalists and you know, academics and other people uh, in the sort of left-leaning pundit sphere were on um, got leaked to the Daily Caller, I think. Um, yeah, I think and, yeah. Leaking it. And, um, anyway, go ahead. 
And anyway, you know, but but Dave Weigel at the time had been hired by the Washington Post, as you know, to largely cover the right, like cover Republicans and, and so forth. And he made – I can't remember what the remark was. But he made something – about gay uh, yeah, something about gay marriage and how you know Republicans yeah. are bigoted or whatever. I mean, yeah. it wasn't that; it really was not that big of a deal. It and I actually do did think the, the criticism at the time was ridiculously overwrought and kind of cheap. And but but he ended up getting fired, or uh, I don't remember the exact circumstances, but he ended up being forced out of the Washington Post, and then yeah. you know returned not that long after. Yes, a few years later, I forget what he did in the interim period. But I guess uh, he wrote. He was at Slate for a while. Um, that's right. Yeah, maybe Bloomberg. Yeah, I think that's all right. That's I'm kind right. of embarrassed that I know this, well, frankly, you, you know, just from memory. Better than I do, but I remember all of this stuff. And, uh, like, I guess I guess my point is... And I've always I had... And I don't know if you've ever met Dave Weigel, but, you know, I, 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 I try to <laughs> caveat a lot of what I said about him uh, just, just as... Just to give a basic report, uh, which is truthful on my part, that my interaction with him with him have always been friendly, at least in person. There have been times where it's spilled out onto Twitter, and he launches he launched a couple of just random ridiculous attacks, and then you know would apologize afterwards. But you know, that's fine. That, that you can accept. Uh, but in terms of just personal interactions, you know, always was rel- was fair and uh, and normal, and you know. Not somebody who you would expect to get embroiled by one of these controversies where he's now like the uh, the sacrificial lamb or whatever for the so new, like, new new breed of journalists who you know want everybody punished yeah. at their own behest. So, like, I guess I guess the point I'm trying to make really is like, okay, Weigel retweeted a joke. Maybe you find it in bad humor and you don't appreciate the joke. Like, fucking whatever, get over yourself. But, like, at the same time, why go, why did you go back to an institution that didn't back you up back then for making, like, really minimal comments on a listserv, not in public, not on Twitter, about about Drudge and maybe some other conservatives who you found, like, distasteful, and then Washington Post doesn't back you up, and they force you out back then. What do you think was going to happen the next time that you made that you retweeted something? This time it wasn't public. Last time it was on journalist in a, a private email, you know, server or listserv, whatever. Like, you know, I have sympathy for Weigel, and then I don't. It's like, why did you go back to an institution that didn't back you up the first time? You thought they were going to back you up the next time? Like, yeah, on. I mean, for 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 me, this, it's not really a matter of whether or not one has individualized sympathy for Weigel. I mean, that's sort of beside the point. Although I, I know I know what you're getting at. Um, however, like at the Washington Post, there's there's so much turnover at these places that you know between 2009 and 2015, or you know whatever the chronology was of when he he was first forced out and then returned. Right. Very possible that there was an entirely different editorial sort of structure. I don't recall off the top of my head um, where you know maybe they learned lessons from that overreaction and then genuinely did want to have a different approach. So I don't really begrudge him on that 
basis. I mean, he, he still could be subject to the same critiques that you might have of anybody who, you know, uh, feels that they must ingratiate themselves to one of these major media institutions. Um, uh, and if you're a political reporter, there really is nowhere else aside from the New York Times maybe where you're going to get as much access as you would by working at the New York Times. I mean, it seems, seems sort of silly, but even get e- getting emails or calls returned is like exponentially easier if you have Washington Post in your domain name um, uh, or on your that come, pops up on your phone number or something than if if you work someplace else or if you're independent or, or, or whatever. So that that alone is a huge advantage that I could see it being reasonable to say, look, you know, whatever reservations I might have about how it was treated back in the day, clearly the Washington Post is this enormous brand that's going to be able to facilitate the kind of work I want to do. That's a good point. That's a good point. I just like, for me personally, as, as you know, the way I operate, if somebody stabs me in the back the way Washington Post did to him in, in 2010, or nine or eleven, whenever it was exactly, I forget. But I'm not going back there. And to me, like he went back there, and this happens. Now he's suspended for a month without pay for retweeting a minimal joke and and, and apologizing. And then, you know, we all know the story of what's what's happened the last few days. So. You know, I. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I take your point. Um, yeah, look, I, I think a lot of people who are in the media industry would give their <laughs> would, would would amputate their left leg to be able to just have the privilege of sending out emails with Washington Post in their <laughs> to their uh, address. Um, and I get it. I get it because there are, there are times where I want to do this. I mean, it just seemed like just last week. Um, I don't want to get into a tangent about this necessarily, but, um, I, uh, saw that there was this war powers resolution that had been introduced by, uh, mostly de- Democrats, but some Republicans as well uh, at that the con- progressive caucus in the house was promoting where they were trying to invoke the war powers act to, cease American military involvement in Yemen. Um, And, you know, I read the resolution and it occurred to me that, you know, per the logic expounded in that resolution as to why American involvement in Yemen constitutes quote-unquote hostilities that would be covered by the War Powers Act, um, that should also apply almost exactly to U.S. military involvement in Ukraine. I mean, it's the, the, the same criteria that they were setting forth, such as, you know, intel, uh, providing intelligence, uh, providing armaments, and so, and so on, uh, as why that constituted more uh, hostilities in Yemen is also being done in Ukraine, and yet there was not, it seems like there's no notion at all to invoke a similar authority with respect to Ukraine. So obviously that's a question that you want to be able to put to some of the members of Congress to at least probe an apparent inconsistency, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I sent out queries to uh, five 
congressmen uh, or women's uh, offices last week, and you know didn't get a reply to any any of my queries. Uh, I know I, sometimes I do get replies, even from you know members of Congress or senators or whatever, uh, but not not always. Uh, but I, I guarantee you, if emails had landed in the inbox of their uh, communications those communications directors uh, from the Washington Post, they would have to scramble to provide some kind of response. Where for me, they can just. It's at least more tenable to just ignore. Um, so that's a, that's a real advantage, um, and I think it you know foolish to deny it. Although you know, obviously, I take your point about at least personally for a while he had this experience of being thrown under the bus once before. Hey, uh, two two quick last things. Uh, first, appreciate you having this late space. I think you're an East Coaster, so it's like almost one a.m. there for you. Yeah. Uh, thank you. My, my, my sleep schedule is not always the most consistent anyway. so I, I feel you on that. Uh, second, uh, somebody just brought up the name Nomiki Khans in the chat a few minutes ago. Any reaction <laughs> for running for office again or Rokana's endorsement of her <laughs> on that? I know it's not always your beat to get into you know that kind of electoral bullshit, but uh, you know, I, I do want to be a little careful in what I say because she was technically a, a colleague of mine for a while when I worked at the Young Turks for a strange uh, interlude of my life. <laughs> um, so we were, we were hired in the same package. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, on a Personal, I got along perfectly well with her. Um, we would disagree on things. Did have had a different philosophy about various things journalistically and whatever. Um, I, I, I'll I'll say that it was apparent to me, you know, what notwithstanding whatever good relations I had with her interpersonally, that she kind of conceived of whatever journalistic role she was given at the, at the Young Turks as sort of a springboard to be involved in more like professional politics. I mean, she had kind of run for Congress at one point in Arizona, although she later denied that she did. And some stuff about her personal political history is sort of uh, opaque. Like at, the, at the Young Turks, she um, was simultaneously, as she was, uh, you know, a journalist technically, um, serving on this um, DNC committee as like a Bernie Sanders representative or delegate. You know, it was like the DNC reform committee. I don't know if people even remember that. Sort of like not that significant in hindsight. Um, but you know, there, there were definitely sort of choices that I wouldn't have made for my own purposes. Um, so I'm not surprised that she's. You also ran running, for, and, she, and she ran for public uh, New York City public advocate in yeah, um, that's what 2019. Big controller or something, but it was public, public advocate, yeah, yeah. So anyway, she it's it's, I, but it I is. Inter- I mean, I, I did see, I did see I the, I did, about it. I did see yeah. the, uh, uh, sort of niche eruption of controversy over the fact that she's running in a primary for a newly redrawn state senate district. In um, Astoria, Queens, uh, where there had already been a candidate um, 
had been endorsed by like the activist left there, uh, like the DSA and, and whatnot. And, uh, you know, so she could be splitting the vote and helping the established Democratic candidate or whatever. I mean, I think that it is sort of interesting um, in terms of what she prioritizes because she is somebody who says, you know, who makes – and I'm not, I'm, even trying to be, I'm not even trying to be derogatory in saying this, although it might come across that way. Um, she is somebody who has made promoting the left, quote-unquote, electorally as part of her brand. And yet here she is taking an action which just sort of intrinsically splits or, or, or undermines the left, or at least if you're talking about the organized activist left. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's people can, can uh, <laughs> take whatever conclusions they wish from that. Your hesitancy in critiquing her, because you know, as as you may know, she uh, she does advocate for investigating uh, Mate and Blumenthal in the gray zone. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, sir. Well, uh, thank you. And there's see, thank you, one Matt. Last, uh, sir Michael. Thank one last caller. So let's go to uh, Philip. Philip, you just made it in the nick of time. If you're there, Philip going once, Philip going twice. If you're not familiar with Colin, you got to unmute yourself by pressing the microphone icon. Yeah, there you go. Hey. Yeah, I was commenting earlier. I was thinking about um, just what kind of I'm, I'm a pharmacist, actually, but I was I do follow things like the Washington Post and the New York Times, and I was just wondering like what kind of environment are they fest have they festered to where people like Felicia Somnes and Taylor Lorenz have so much power for their, I guess, as your um, friend Richard Hanania would say, um, women's tears. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think the, these are institutions that are incubators of elite trends that are observable all throughout the rest of society. Um, so, you know, these are the places where people at elite colleges want to end up if they're pursuing journalism and they're going to be vastly overrepresented amongst the staff at these places. Um, and so, yeah, it's not even necessarily unique to the New York Times or the Washington Post in terms of the environment that's been fostered. It's just that in a journalistic context, it has certain <laughs> implications. Um, and Sanders and Taylor Lorenz are the most kind of vivid examples of the types of people who have pioneered this whole mindset around the you know, therapeutic trauma jargon or whatever. And you know, women's tears is kind of a crude way of putting it. But, I mean, Felicia Sanders actually did literally say, did literally bring up her tears, her crying episodes, and her uh, extreme psychological turmoil as um, as a basis on which to make demands that were then acceded to by the Washington Post uh, management. So it worked. Um, uh, I think uh, you know you could probably see, and especially in, you know, in the media, the, the the influence of like activist culture is going to be much more direct. Because you know the, a lot of the journalists are covering activism and they're using activists as sources, so they're kind of 
embedded within this kind of nonprofit complex where a lot of these ideas are also uh, incubated. Um, so I think, I think they're almost, like at the tip of the spear for the most extreme uh, manifestations of what this, this mindset brings to bear. Uh, but I, I mean, I think also you're going to see, uh, and I'm sure you have, I know there's no concrete examples immediately come to mind, but even in less, even in industries that are less visible to the public, I mean, journalism is sort of unique also in that, like everybody's on social media, everybody's, everybody has to be public in a way to do their job. Um, but like even, I don't know, think about some other industry, um, well, I, 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 I think you're going to see very similar trends just in, given how pervasive this mentality really is uh, in, in having been inculcated uh, oh, by, yeah. by elite institutions. I've been on um, the wrong side of that myself um, at one of my jobs. I was, uh, I guess you could say, part of a civil rights case where – they didn't. They had cameras and everything, so they didn't see any wrongdoing. But I was accused of wrongdoing, and it was taken very seriously. Almost damaged my career. It was. What kind of wrongdoing were you accused of? Um. Do you want to say? <laughs> I could say it. Um. It was very weird. She's, I was accused of invading someone's personal space. Okay. And this is at a corporation. Um. They, what does that what, really what, what, what what does that mean? Like, were you accused of physical contact or no? No physical contact. That's the thing. Like, huh. there's, there was cameras where I worked, so they didn't see anything. They just it was very. I have I still have the papers of the um, when I was written up about it, and it was very vague. Just that I didn't respect like the rules or something like that. Um, policies. It was. It was very weird. Like I was just accused of invading somebody's personal space, and that they had made a fuss about it. But they didn't make a fuss about it when I was at the job. It was only after the fact. Like you know, like I guess in the case of Felicia Somnes, as you said earlier, they just took her at her word because it's unfalsifiable. So they they didn't see that um, she complained to me, or she didn't confront me personally. She went to the higher up, a higher right. up. And what was her? What was her? What was the? Could you be? I'm sort of curious now. Like, can you be a little more specific about what she actually alleged? I mean, did she actually use the phrase um, "invading personal space" or like what? What did she actually specifically allege that you did that was violative of some policy or whatever? It it really. I mean, I know it sounds baffling, but that really was it. That I invaded her personal space. It wasn't that I touched her or that I had said. So that so that like you were so so like were you. Did, that you were just physically too close to her at one point. Yes, that's what she said. <laughs> and I mean, were were you ever close to her? Like to where it could be? I mean, did you have any notion that this could be alleged, or was it a total shock? It was a total shock, actually. Huh. Um, I remember getting a call from um the um the um manager of the store, not the manager of the store, but the manager of the department that I worked in, and she said that um I had been a, had been. T- that this incident had happened. I didn't even know who did it. I had an assumption that it was somebody. And then so on a whim, I decided to guess it was somebody else. And I was correct when I, when I changed my mind, huh. like that, that's how much, that's how much of it came to a surprise is the person who I thought it was, it wasn't it. So what came of it? I mean, did you have to participate in an investigation? Did you provide evidence? Or I mean, what, 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 what transpired from there? 
like once the allegation was lodged. I, I, I did. I did participate in an investigation. Um, I talked to the guy from a. He was a former police officer. It was in Lost and Found. Um, what came of that? Uh, I got written up for it, and they. It, I got disciplinary action. I couldn't work at that store anymore. Hmm. I mean, it, do you, it was just too much. Do you? Th- I mean, do you, do you think that you actually did do anything wrong, or is it just totally absurd to you that you could be accused of having done anything wrong? Like even even if it was inadvertent or whatever. I felt that I felt personally that I didn't do anything wrong. That that this this incident that she had described didn't happen. Like it was really her word versus mine. Like they asked me, um, "Do you remember her being, um, you know?" Acting like she was offended by you or anything what, 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 like that. What incident did she describe? Like, what's the incident really that, that she described? From... Okay. Let me. I remember it was... because, like, because in, in order, in order, in order to defend yourself, in order to rebut what you would regard as false allegations, wouldn't the nature of the incident that's being alleged have to be described to you? <laughs> Or maybe yeah, not. They, I mean, they have these like kangaroo courts now where it, it was pretty much a kangaroo court. Um, even even after the fact, I talked to this person, and I don't know. My mom said that it, she was just probably trying to keep it professional, but she sounded like like you know we were on good terms. It was it was hmm. a very weird situation. I just remember the um, I was told by the and was this like a re- this is like a retail setting. Yes, it was. It was a retail setting. Okay. I was told that um And when was this roughly? Like what year? Yeah. Um I wanna say twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen. Okay, so it, it was it was it <laughs> was it post Me Too like erupting or uh around the before same time? Me too. It was, it oh, was before, a okay. before Me Too. It was before okay. Me Too because when Me Too happened, I was no longer working for that company. Okay, so me too. Me too. It was the fall of uh, 2017. So, oh, was it? Yeah. Okay. The Harvey Weinstein thing broke. You know, I want to say October of 2017. You know what? Let me go inside my house and go see because I, I have the information. <laughs> now, now, now you got me curious about your ordeal. <laughs> Check it out because I, I remember. Okay, yeah, it's uh, hard hard to hear you right now. I don't know if you changed your. I don't know if you went on speakerphone or something. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, that's better. Let me see. Um, what, are you using the microwave? <laughs> no, it's turned out on a lot. Sorry. Okay. Uh, I mean, you know, the, 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 the precise chronology doesn't really matter that much. I was just sort of cu- just curious. Uh, so, but, I mean, what was, the, uh, what was the ultimate? So the ultimate outcome was that you were written up and you could no longer work at that store. I mean, but, but you weren't fired. I mean, you could, you, did you start working at a different store? I worked at other stores from then on. Um, a lot of things happened during that period. Let me see when this was. Do you out. want to say the company or would it be too revealing? Um, I, I can say the company. Um, I don't think anybody would listen to it. Um, it was it was at Walgreens. 
Walgreens. Oh, okay. It was just at Walgreens today. <laughs> actually, let me see. Um, yeah, I actually do have the paper. They gave me your. It was at, yeah. It was actually okay. So it was it was post me too. It was um, August twenty eighteen. Was when I had. The so that was movie. well after that. Yeah. So that you were you were that was the, that was you were sort of caught up in the in the uh, the belly of the Me Too beast. Given that yes. timing. See, this is what they said. They said this is a written warning is the result of an AP investigation triggered by a report of misconduct. After thorough investigation, it was found that I acted in an unprofessional manner. Okay. So acted in an unprofessional manner, not in a sexually... I mean, they, they didn't specify that you engaged in like a sexually harassing manner. No, that was the thing. That's what I, I was. I thought it was such BS because it was like when I looked at my professional conduct thing, it was like they were so vague about what happened. Yeah, like they couldn't really pin anything. But I guess because, like you said, it was after me too. They she had made a the um, store manager told me that she had made such a fuss about it that they thought they had to do something. Yeah. What um, could you say? Like what state this was, or what region of the country? This was like um, Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's – I actually do find that really interesting because, you know, if you're in the media in a sense, like I am, you can tend to be disproportionately focused on the ramifications of these trends within the media itself. And, you know, it, it, it's not going to be front page news when, some, when there's some controversy at a Walgreens in, in Dallas, Fort Worth. Um, but really, I mean, that's um, – it has a real impact on people's lives and livelihoods. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's I, interesting. I, I did make comments. Um, I did argue against them. I said that it, was, um, it wasn't fair disciplinary action. I deny all the allegations. And I don't even know what I was, what I did wrong. Um, <laughs> I, I wonder I if I have an opportunity to face my. I didn't. I didn't have a chance. To you like, had no opportunity you know, to face your accuser, right? No, I didn't. Yeah, and, did, and they so. never named. They never. They never. You used, you used like you used like process of elimination to figure out who it was, or did they say who it was who accused? They you? never told me who it was. I, I just huh. said only the the manager told me who it was, but she allowed me to guess first, and then she confirmed. <laughs> Right, but like uh, in terms of like your participation in the investigation, they never told me you weren't told in that context who accused right. you. It was just sort of like a you know a a um, mystery person behind, behind 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 the scenes disclosure that you were told. Correct. Wow. Yeah, I mean that's. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, you know, obviously, I, I I don't have all the facts. Uh, you know, if I were if I were going to if I were reporting on this or something, I would have to seek out you know the quote other side or whatever. Which obviously I don't really have much interest in doing. I'm just uh, curious about your experience because it's um, it, it, I think it's necessary for for journalists to be reminded of how these trends that they kind of permit to incubate within their institutions can have much broader based consequences, which is why, you know, unfortunately it actually is also necessary to maintain a, um, a, a keen, a keen focus on what happens at 
places like the New York Times or Washington Post or whatever, because uh, trends start there and uh, and then uh, you know percolate outwards even to a, <laughs> a Walgreens potentially. Yeah, yeah, it's, it was ridiculous. What, what was your so what, what was your like uh, what was your larger conclusion based on that experience? Like, what? How do you summarize it now? Um. You know, I haven't really thought about it because, like, I mean, I'll be honest, um, I am of African-American descent, so mm-hmm. people did try to color that effect in it. It was kind of mm. weird because my accuser was also African-American descent as well. <laughs> so it was mm. like, um, you know, people might, I was like, people, they see you in a position of power, they might try to, you know, make these accusations and they, they very well could work as it kind of almost did in this case. I mean, I wasn't fired, but it did have ramifications. I, I was limited to the stores I could work and the people I could be around. It was also, I guess it was a similar environment to like the Washington Post where people gossiped, hostile yeah. work environment. You didn't know what people thought of you or if they knew. Yeah. Yeah, and I could I could would imagine that kind of fraught ambiguity can wear on you, just be unpleasant. And I mean, I was like only one of the, like the few people my age and my ethnicity in, in the position that I had. So it was like you know even then I mean you know they, they could still even if you're a quote unquote minority, those it felt like they could still throw you under the bus if it was convenient for them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, um, <laughs> thanks. Thanks for that insight, uh, Philip. Um, yeah, it's something definitely to uh, to ponder. And, and sorry, um, Reese Cam, um, I'm not trying to say that it was like you know, race was a variable. It was just that I, I was. I don't. I don't try to think in those terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, no, I know what you mean. People they throw that out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. I guess the fact that it was another, it was a black woman kind of, <laughs> I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like if it had been, for example, a white woman, then there might have been a little bit more reticence to allow an allegation like that to go forward because then potentially there could be a racial angle invoked by you to claim that you were being unduly targeted. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I really don't know. I tr- like I said, I, don't, I normally don't try to think of in terms like that. I mean, I think that anything could happen to anybody. Yeah. Personally, um, could race have been a factor? It's possible. Could it have not? I I just, it, that's possible as well. It's just not something I really think about. I just try to be more careful. I mean, the option for people out there who are into that stuff is there, though. I'll, I'll admit Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, well, that's what I meant. Like, not, not necessarily you would have personally chosen to go down that road, but somebody in a similar position might have. And actually, I did know a guy. It, it did happen to him once. He was accused, but it was it was a, a similar. Not a, it was a similar racial incident. He was a black man, and it was a black woman who accused him of racism. So yeah, it, it can get <laughs> a little ridiculous. <laughs> what was even, that accusation? Even, <laughs> now, now you're, uh, you're 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 bringing ago. me into your world, which I appreciate. It was a long time ago. It was a guy who I knew. He was like he was also a pharmacist, but he said that um, 
he said that he was accused once. Um, I guess a woman was kind of jealous of him. She wanted to, you know, jump him in power. And this was way before Me Too. So her weaponization was see if she could get him off on racism. But then when they found out he was a black guy, they, they threw the case <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Right. I mean, so, I mean, in those... I feel like in those situations that are so farcical in so many ways anyway, you know, we're leaving aside any racial component in that, you know, you can't even face your accuser. There's zero even pretense of due process. Like you don't even know what you're being alleged to have done. Um, I almost wouldn't blame you. Uh, Again, not saying you would necessarily do this yourself, but I wouldn't blame you to invoke whatever argument or counterclaim you could, however specious, to just insulate yourself from it. Because, the, again, the process is already so ridiculous. So why not just add yeah. another layer of ridiculousness if it could potentially insulate you? I mean, yeah, I, I didn't I didn't want to play the game that way, to be honest. I mean, it felt like it lacked integrity, but I, I understand what you're saying as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I didn't right. make the rules. They did, but, you know, I could play by them, but sorry. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, Philip. That's uh, it's very interesting. Maybe in a slightly perverse way, but uh, I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up. It's it's good context to add to this discussion. Um, all right, everybody. Uh, it's quite late now. Thanks everyone who uh, hung in. I thought this was a pretty illuminating, interesting discussion, um, and uh, appreciate everybody who took part. Gonna be back with uh, Richard Hanania on a. Uh, Thursday, so you know, maybe he'll have, maybe we'll artfully um, <laughs> incorporate a uh, discussion along these lines with uh, the latest from Ukraine, because uh, I'm, I'm an expert at segueing between randomly disparate topics. Uh, all right, that'll do it. Thanks, Philip, and thanks, everybody, and uh, take care. <laughs>